Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. We're a social species that survived due to building secure affiliations. And in groups, we uh, can survive predators and build communities that thrived even in adverse conditions. So the most vital skill human beings learn is how to connect with each other, especially in the most important relationships of our lives. Now, for better or for worse, this learning actually happens very, very early in life. It's so important that, in fact, the process of learning how to connect with others starts at nine months of age, and especially at around age two, when this process is at its height, the brain has twice as many neural synapses as adult brains. And that means the brain is learning faster much faster than at any other time in life. And the bulk of these extreme growth of synaptic connections and neural circuits in the brain is in the right hemisphere, which stores the information about how we attach and how we act with others in relationships. The right hemisphere stays dominant up until around age five. And then when uh, we start becoming more and more language-based in our connection with others. The right hemisphere, which has already done the bulk of its learning about what to expect from others, how we relate to others, whether we're lovable or not, who to connect to for support and care. All these learnings happen, actually, a lot of these learnings happen before we acquire language. And they're stored in a region of the brain, as I said, right hemisphere, right orbital frontal, etc., that becomes unconscious in adult life, largely unconscious. And therefore, it becomes less and less easy to change these learnings. They're known as implicit learnings, just like learning how to walk how to eat, how to stand up, how to um, do basic movements is deeply ingrained and very difficult to change. So are these what are called internal working models. Who I connect to, how I, um, uh, whether I feel lovable or not, whether I feel good about myself, whether I feel anxious or secure in, in relationships or whether I feel avoidant. A lot of this learning happens very, very early in life and at times of our life before, as adults, we can even remember these learnings. So uh, they are changeable, but um, it's important to understand how influential these times are. Now, if we understand what we need in secure attachments, we can um, understand what not only we needed in childhood, but also applies to us in our adult lives as well. So I'm going to go over very quickly some of the dominant theories in what we need as human beings from each other. Uh, first, what we needed in childhood, and 
in understanding these needs, we can better understand what we need from each other in adult relationships. So I think it's very important to be somewhat familiar with some of the great insights of contemporary psychology and how it's uh, really um, open up uh, for understanding how human beings bond with each other. So quickly, um, there are four dominant theories of uh, how of what we need in attachment. The first was by, um, or at least the first I'll discuss it quickly, is by Winnicott, D.W. Winnicott, who said that infants need security and holding by their good enough parents. That the parent doesn't have to be perfect, but the parent has to be somewhat reliable and providing uh, available uh, care, attention, and it has to be, the, the, the caregiver has to be responsive and be capable of paying attention to the child. If the child doesn't get enough holding, physical touch, uh, empathy, etc., the child develops a false self to get their needs met. They'll fail to disclose and express over time their internal states, and they'll become more and more ambivalent in relationships. They'll very often, according to Winnicott, they'll develop lifelong hollow relationships because they'll constantly be presenting what they think other people want rather than what they feel internally. So for Winnicott, the this false self is only prevented by early, secure, holding, touch, play spaces where the parent sits with the child and creates this ongoing sense of proximity. And now these themes are going to be found, as you'll see, in some of the other dominant theories of how we attach to others. A second uh, a theorist was a great great, important, influential self-psychologist named Heinz Coat, who said that he, we needed three things in childhood, the same three things that we need throughout much of our life. The first is that empathetic mirroring, having our emotions recognized by another who creates a safe space for us to feel and express whatever we're feeling. Coat also said that um, we need a sense of a parent or a caregiver who's a friend, what he called twinship, someone who joins us as we explore the world, who has fun with us, and someone who um, uh, creates a sense of uh, mutuality. And then we also need a caregiver who can model what it's like to be successful, to meet challenges to meet obstacles in life. And if the child doesn't get these important features in early life, the child who doesn't get empathetic mirroring will start to rely on what he called narcissism. The child will protect its vulnerable emotions by creating this grandiose self that will always be perfect and will always need admiration. 
the child that doesn't get a modeling of how to succeed and meet challenges in life will grow up to be an adult who struggles to exert agency, pursue goals, to take risks, and so forth. In attachment theory, which is of course one of the fields that I've done most of my st academic study and uh, a lot of my training in and what has been along with Buddhist um, uh, studies has been a lot of also my counseling work. Um, again, uh, empathy is very important but also what is considered to be vital between each other is um, having uh, early on and throughout our life people who are soothing that can essentially when we're in distress um, make us feel safer, uh, soothe or down modulate our autonomic nervous system to a state of where we're no longer breathing rapidly, where we're relaxed, where we're open, where we're attentive. And we also need, according to the work of Shore and Brown and Elliot and McEwlinser and so many others, we need appreciation. We need people to acknowledge our achievements, our growth, our exploration. We're constantly seeking appreciation. If we get these core experiences of empathy, soothing, appreciation, and, and proximity, we wind up with a secure base, an internal sense that other people care about us, and we gravitate unconsciously to partners who will be secure and available. On the other hand, if we don't get these needs met, we will become either insecure or avoidant, or in the worst cases of abuse, will become disorganized. Now, I'll only talk for a moment on insecure avoidant. Insecure individuals are those who only sporadically received reliable, soothing attention and appreciation. And so they gravitate unconsciously through repetition compulsion to partners who are only sporadically available and are emotionally unreliable. They'll be hypervigilant in relationships. They'll experience greater degrees of jealousy and insecurity. They'll, const they'll be uh, concerned about abandonment and they'll seek constant reassurance from their partners. On the other hand, children who almost never get soothing that is uh, that is reliable, who feel their caregivers can't uh, provide the kind of uh, uh, calming, uh, deeply rewarding attention that they seek, those children become avoidant uh, and or um, uh, dismissive adults. And they will minimize their needs for attachment. They'll constantly be prone to feeling engulfed in relationships. They'll be far more self-reliant than is necessary, and they'll constantly be prone to distance-seeking behaviors. So again, we see this need for early uh, empathy, 
proximity, uh, soothing, appreciation throughout all these th these approaches, again and again show that there's lasting ramifications in how we bond and with others. Lastly, uh, another group of theorists that I really admire, uh, as well as all the others, Fanegi and Bateman, note that in addition to appreciation, soothing, empathy, and proximity to important people throughout our lives, what we also need is someone who has the ability to um, mark that they understand our emotions, but that they're okay, that they are not in distress, that they are, that they can help us work through our 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 challenges. Um, parents, for them, responses to distress, whether not not only is it necessarily for them to be validating and supportive, but they need to signal to the child that they're okay. And if they can do this, then the child has a capability of understanding other people's emotions. But if parents fail to regularly signal not only they understand the emotions of children, but that they are okay by after like, for instance, an example, a child comes to the parent fully frightened or upset or lonely or sad, expresses the emotion. So the parent first stops and mirrors back the emotion. Oh, you're feeling sad or you're, you hurt yourself or you're feeling scared or overwhelmed. But then the parent smiles reassuringly and signals that they are okay and that they can help the child. And this child begins to understand the difference between its internal state and the internal state of the parent and begins to understand that the parent has a different emotional experience than its own. And that is very important as we'll see as we go on. Now, how do these um, early experiences, not only around age two to five, but throughout childhood and adolescence, how do the quality of our attachments play out in our adult relationships? Well, if we are, if we've experienced secure attachments, then what will happen is our emotions will be integrated, which means if early on, no matter what we were feeling, sad, angry, lonely, frustrated, uh, uh, overwhelmed, um, uh, happy, uh, surprised, shocked, if our different affect states were recognized, then they'll be integrated and we won't repress them in adult life. But if we, if those emotions, like if our frustration in childhood isn't seen, if our anger isn't seen and acknowledged and soothed, if our sadness or loneliness isn't recognized, those emotional states will be repressed as adults rather than fully acknowledged and felt. And when we start to repress these emotions, rather than recognizing our feelings, we'll become shut down, self-reliant, we'll pretend we're fine and we'll seek distance very often, or we'll create 
pretend emotional states for others. If we're unable to recognize our internal emotional states, if we repress them, our emotions become experienced as undifferentiated stress. And when that happens, we start to blame people around us in the world rather than understand, oh, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm feeling lonely. We'll start to pin the stress because all those emotions will not be understood. They'll just be experienced as an underlying agitation or tension. And we'll then blame people around us for our internal emotional states. So what's key in at first in understanding relational tension between people is that very often what's at heart is an individual's inability to first be aware of, recognize, label, and understand their own internal emotional state. If we don't understand our own internal emotional states, then what will happen is we'll develop a failure to what's called mentalize, which means grasp the underlying motivations of others. We'll start to project our early abandonments, our early experiences onto our present partners. And we'll always believe that our partners have the worst motivations, the most traumatic motivations, because those are the experience that leave the most lasting impacts on us. So for example, someone who hasn't got the ability to recognize and process grief will just experience interpersonal losses in their life, not being able to connect with friends, losing uh, uh, colleagues or uh, having disappointing experiences in life. They won't recognize their own frustration or sadness. They'll just experience it as tension or stress or being irritable. And then they'll blame the partners around them for this state that is actually due to emotional experiences that are previous. Somebody, for example, who's at a has a job that's very stressful, doesn't know how to process their frustration or anger, will at home just feel stressful and tense, and then blame their relational partner, their children, or someone around them for their feelings. But even more important than this ability to stop, feel, and process our internal affects and then be able to understand that these are very often, emotions are very often uh, uh, responses to previous events that are not due to our current partners. Key in relationships are also the ability to respond to the bids for attention by our partners. And this is a vital, vital, vital uh, element of relationships to understand. All human beings, as we said, are constantly seeking attention. We desperately want to be seen in the eyes of others. Bids for attention are how our species survived. It's how we bonded, we developed affiliations, we developed uh, 
kinship and so forth. It's how we signal our needs. Bids for attention are behind almost every language utterance we make in our life. They're very often behind every grunt or loud sound or uh, movement sometimes we even make when we're around others. Bids for attention can be verbal or nonverbal. They can be very subtle. They can be demanding. We can be conscious that we're making a bid for attention, or we can be completely unaware that we're making a bid for attention. We can make bids for attention through facial expressions, through asking questions, or through physical outreach where we're trying to touch someone or inadvertently reach out and make contact. Bids for attention can be serious, they can be funny, they can be playful, they can be sexual. But as uh, the great uh, relationship uh, clinical psychologist John Gottman said, uh, I believe his quote was, it's not the depth of intimacy, as I recall, that in conversations that matters so much in relationships. So it's not, it doesn't matter if couples have really deep, you know, conversations all the time. He says it doesn't even matter if couples agree or disagree. What matters to relationships is whether couples pay attention to each other. In other words, it doesn't matter whether we agree it doesn't matter how deep the conversations are, but the real salient issue is how often do we stop and make eye contact or express to our partner that we're listening. Gottman found that couples who don't respond to each other's bids for attention 75% of the time, that's three out of every four times, fail. He also found that for every time we don't respond to a bid for attention, we have to have five reparative events where we actually pay attention. And if we fail to have those five positive interactions, we become, as we'll see, more experience more and more conflict and more and more tension and more and more breakdowns in our relationships. Gottman noted that there's some constant, there's some really pervasive tendencies that lead to relational breakdowns and failure to meet bids for attention. When someone expresses frustration or disappointment or irritability to us, the most destructive way to respond is with judgment or contempt, of course, which means to signal that there's something wrong with our partner's feelings. Even if we disagree with their fact claims, if somebody says, you never, you know, you never uh, call, you never pick up the towels, you never do X. If we immediately respond, you know, look, uh, roll our eyes or just give a huh, and then start to debate the, uh, f the fact claims that they're making rather than see, oh, my partner is not feeling supported. Then we're not responding to their bid for attention and they feel dropped and not heard. 
So if we're defensive, if faced with criticism, we rationalize our behavior or we attack our partner's behavior in kind. If we fail to simply acknowledge what they're feeling, then we've not met their bid for attention. And another kind of failure is when we stonewall, when we, we, look, we become fidgety, we break off eye contact, we look around, we become distracted, we pick up our phone. In some way, we disconnect. That again sends a very important message to our partner that their emotion, their feelings, their internal states don't matter to us. And that has a, is a devastating blow to the sanctity and security of our partnerships. When partners don't feel their, their bids for attention are heard, it triggers early feelings of abandonment. And at that time, because it triggers all those times where, you know, because the right hemisphere, what happened in childhood is experienced as if it happened yesterday. It's, it's as clear and crisp in the right temporal lobe as if it was just a yesterday event. When a partner, when a friend doesn't respond to our bid for attention, it switches our nervous system from homeostatic into a sympathetic state. And now we're far more prone to fight, flight, fawn behaviors. Most of the time, if we don't feel our bids for attention are being met, we'll ratchet up the volume, we'll ratchet up the attacks or criticism simply because we're regressing to an earlier state of seeking to be heard by others, seeking to have our emotions seen by others. So in almost all cases, to, to alleviate tension in relationships, it's a matter of providing secure, empathetic attention, not agreeing or disagreeing, not even going into the depths of what's causing the emotions, but simply to stop and listen and signal that we believe the other person's emotional state is important. Now that we've covered some of the theories of what uh, leads to secure relationships and what leads to tension in relationships, what are some of the tools to develop and sustain healthy relationships between romantic partners, friendships, and family members. Well, as I, I'm sure you've guessed by now, it's essential to meet each other's bids for attention, to be willing to pause, to be willing to make eye contact, to respond to uh, texts or what, however the form of the bid for attention comes or appears. If our partner seeks a conversation that we presently don't have time for, that's okay. The key is to stop for a moment, acknowledge that our partner seeks our attention and then suggest a time where we can connect where we can 
bond where we can provide each other the uh, attention and proximity that we're all seeking from cradle to grave. Another key is nonverbal connection, which regulates each other's uh, autonomic nervous systems. Love, uh, believe, it, believe it or not, can actually be defined. It's when two people, when they're together, can regulate each other's nervous systems from states of distress, from states of hypervigilance, from states of uh, chronic cortisol release or fight-flight behaviors down to homeostasis. And the way, the most efficient way to do this is through physical touch, cuddling, walking together, lying together, the heavy lifting in romantic relationships is actually nonverbal. It's not only the stopping and paying attention and listening, it's the reaching out, the willingness to come closer, the willingness to lean in, the willingness to uh, signal through eye contact and facial expressions and a softer tone of voice that we care. One technique that is exceedingly valuable in healing conflict and relationships is the mirroring dialogue technique. Uh, the mirroring dialogue technique was developed in Imago therapies by Hervil Hendricks. And it's been useful when I've done some, I'm not someone who does a lot of couples counseling to be sure, most of my work um, as a Buddhist pastor uh, who provides Buddhist therapy is to work with individuals one-on-one. -on -one. But one of the tools I have used, and it's been it's very successful in when couples have uh, dynamics that they want to change, is this technique developed by Hervel Hendricks. And what it looks like is... When one person feels frustrated or upset, they make a request for a time to connect. They don't ambush their partner. They don't demand that their partner stop and pay attention immediately. They actually simply signal that they want to have a time where they can meet and connect and um, essentially work through something. In uh, the mirroring dialogue technique, it's essential that their partner, if they can't do it soon, that they come up with a time within the next 24 hours that they'll put aside. It's important that we signal to our partners that they're a priority. And even if we've got a lot going on, understanding that our relationships are vital for not only our well-being, but for our partner's well-being, we take the time to find uh, a half hour to put aside to really connect. When this connection happens, um, one partner expresses what's going on and there's a very uh, good formula for that. It goes like this. When I feel X, so X being an emotion, when I feel uh, oh, no, sorry, it's when you do X, sorry, when you do X, when you, uh, 
don't respond to my texts, when you uh, don't show up, when you say you were going to show up, when you um, uh, forget something you promised to do, I feel why. I feel sad, I feel frustrated, I feel angry, I feel disappointed, I feel that I want to just shut down and give up. And that makes me want to do then Z, which means that makes me want to not connect anymore. That makes me want to uh, express my anger even louder. That makes me want to uh, not rely on you when I have certain needs, etc. So again, the formula is when I when you do X, when you do something, I feel Y, and it makes me want to do Z. The key to uh, mirroring dialogue is that the partner doesn't interrupt, they listen. And then once their partner has finished expressing, you know, this I feel and I want to do statement. They repeat back everything they've heard in their own words, acknowledging the emotion of their partners. And they're not allowed to respond until they get it right, until they can repeat back what they've heard in such a way that their partner says, yes, that was what I was communicating. At that point, it becomes the other partner's turn to explain what motivated their action or what was going on in their mind. And then once there's a mutual understanding, the interaction is done with, the bonding and the repair has occurred. This is a really wonderful practice. And if you'd like to read more about it, you can just look up any of the work of Herval Hendricks and Mirroring Dialogue. Um, in other couples therapies, like emotion-focused therapies, it's vital to slow down and pause. And before we engage with someone in a, from a place of frustration, to understand what we're feeling and what our real needs are, to be able to articulate, I'm feeling and what I need is this. That's the key in attachment bonding with couples, knowing what, how, what we're feeling and what our core needs are so that we wouldn't be, a, we don't have to, we can downregulate that feeling. Rather than making so many external statements about what our partner should do or hasn't done, focusing simply on stating what our core needs are. So this has been just an overview of some of the keys in uh, uh, building secure relationships. Um, the last thing I'd like to note is how important Buddhist practice, spiritual practice, or it doesn't have to be Buddhist, any spiritual practice is in helping us address relational tension and staying and being in secure relationships. To the degree that we can stop, pause, and begin to bring our awareness internally through concentration practice 
It downregulates our autonomic nervous system, making us less reactive in relationships. We became we become more capable of sitting and listening and providing a responsive uh, recipient where we can respond to our partner's bids for attention rather than if our nervous systems are running instead of a one or two up around a four or five, if suddenly we're in a difficult interaction, it can throw us into fully fight flight states where we just want to give up, where we feel overwhelmed, where we no longer really hear what our partners are saying. The simple dedication to having a daily practice uh, Sarah Lazard Harvard Harvard shown 20 minutes a day uh, actually reduces the gray matter in the amygdala making us less prone to feel abandoned and vulnerable in relationships so that's very key but another part of Buddhist practice is also vital mindfulness mindfulness is a practice where we not only sustain awareness for example on the breath or on sounds, or on uh, awareness, uh, or repeating phrases, I, I love you, keep going, or may all beings be uh, peaceful, happy, free of stress and suffering, etc. Um, mindfulness is the ability to scan different parts of our experience, noting our feelings, noting our moods, noting whatever is the prevalent repetitive thoughts that are going on in our mind. The more we become mindfully aware, especially of our feelings, the more capable we are of integrating our feelings into our interpersonal lives rather than just experiencing emotions and feelings as stress. And if we can do that, we're more capable of labeling our emotions and we're more capable of regulating them and we're more capable of expressing our internal states to others. And that makes our re relationships that much more secure. So that was a mouthful. Uh, went a little over in time, but wanted to give you as much info as I possibly could. So we're now going to put into practice some of those tools that we talked about. So find a really comfortable seated position where you can, you don't, it doesn't have to be a strict rigid meditation posture if you want to lie down, if you want to slump on a couch, it's all good. Um, I recommend closing our eyes. And if you don't close your eyes, find a object that's very neutral to rest your gaze on, something that is not threatening, upsetting, or something that you're uh, particularly lusting after, like uh, food that you want to eat. <laughs> Uh, just rest your eyes on perhaps something natural, a plant, or a candle, or um, something that doesn't evoke ex extremely uh, strong emotions. Uh, 
and then uh, we're going to first bring our attention to the focus of our attention to our internal experience and we're going to become aware of first whether we're breathing in or whether we're breathing out how do we know for much of our life we just kind of vaguely know if we're asked are you breathing in or out so we're going to bring attention to those parts of the body those movements in the body the swelling the contraction the uplift the release that express respiration in the body when I'm breathing in I can feel my belly first slightly expand and lift and then my chest opens up I feel an upward movement of energy up from the belly to the chest it's like a wave coming into shore and then as I breathe out it's like a wave releasing returning to the ocean the water slipping away so the chest begins to release the energy moves down the body to the belly the belly begins to um, soften for some of us the breath is experienced as air entering through the nose being then released so some people are aware of the breath by sensations of air moving as it reaches the nose and that's fine as well and all we're going to do to begin to restore our nervous systems to healthy functioning where we're not reactive where we're not busy where we're not trying to get through life is we're simply going to keep bringing our awareness back to this neutral object just the body breathing the more we can rest our attention and keep our attention on an ongoing sensation just that practice in and of itself is soothing does so much of the heavy lifting of allowing us to be present to others to not be reactive now if you don't want to work with the breath that's fine you can simply be aware of the sensations occurring in your body or be maintain awareness of the sounds arising and passing around you or you can hold in your mind a simple image in early Buddhism the Buddha talked about nimittas 
holding in mind a very simple shape, a circle or a square, a color, and making that internal image, that internal sign, spread until it becomes bigger and bigger, more expansive, till all our awareness is filled with this color or shape. Or it can be a very simple phrase we repeat over and over. I love you, keep going. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. So from all of these sounds, sensations, breathing, repeating phrases, choose one or holding an image in mind, hold, choose one and let that be your anchor. An anchor is a place you bring your awareness back again and again and rest on it, making it the most important experience in your life at this time. And we'll sit here in silence, just practicing our ability to relax and soothe our internal states through concentration.
For a second practice, what I'd like you to do is scan the front of your body from your belly, your chest, your shoulders, your throat, and your face, and just become familiar with how these parts of your body signal what's called your affect, your emotional state, what you're feeling. Very often when we're angry, the eyes, muscles, micromuscles squinch, the jaw clenches, the uh, shoulders contract. When we're sad, the body hunches forward. There's a hollowness in the chest. Fear, the belly tightens. The, there's a sense of also opening up of the eyes which start to dart about looking for a threat. So if you'd like, either observe the shift of feelings occurring in your body and see if you can recognize what emotional state you're in right now. Or bring to mind an emotional experience from the recent past. As you bring to mind this emotional event, have a sense of what it meant to you and note how the feelings play out in the front of your body, whether contractions or release in the stomach, whether the chest feels hollow or warm, whether the throat feels strangled or released, whether the jaw is tight, whether the shoulders are concentrated and contracted up towards the ears or released the quality of the eyes. The more we're familiar with our somatic markers or feelings, the more we become aware of our internal emotional states and can express them in our relationships.
So lastly, as our last practice, I'd like you to visualize someone who's important to you right in front of you, expressing a frustration, a disappointment, either with you or an intense emotion. And what I'd like you to do while you hold this visual in mind of someone who you care about or someone who's been important to you in your life, expressing a difficult state of being a difficult internal experience, is to practice maintaining a sense of soothing disposition softening your internal experience so that you can hear and stay with this experience. You might notice as you visualize someone you care about being angry or deeply sad or some other challenging state, you might notice your stomach becoming tight. If that happens, breathe into it, release it, soften it. You might notice your shoulders contract, tighten, and move upwards. If that's the case, round them back, drop them, release them. If you notice something in you wants to uh, respond or be helpful, just release the tension around your eyes, relax your jaw, breathe slowly. The key in relationships is not how wise we respond, but simply our ability to pay attention in a soothing, open, empathetic, receptive way. There's no better way to practice than right here, right now.
So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. When you hear the sound, just take your time. Allow your awareness to balance between your internal experience and the world around you. No need to look immediately back at the screen. All you'll see is a bald Buddhist pastor there anyway. So there's nothing you need to rush back to. Just take your time. <laughs> 